So we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. I would encourage you to go ahead and turn there. Uh, it's, uh, we're going to be here the next three weeks. It's been said that this is the pinnacle of, or the peak of Luke's gospel. Like this is the this climactic point, not to take away from Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection, but he is getting to the heart of the gospel in this text. And so if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. If you don't, the, the Bible's in front of you. It's a, our gift to you. I would encourage you to take one out of the chair, take it home if you don't have your own. Or you can find me on Facebook or uh, Twitter, and you can follow along with the notes in the YouVersion Live event. Uh, it is the Word that works. We believe in the Scripture. We would encourage you to, to follow along, to read the Word. So as you're turning, as you're kind of getting settled into that, let me just start with a question. Have you ever lost anything? You ever lost something like just, you know, I, I lose stuff all the time. So uh, I daily, sometimes weekly lose my keys or my wallet or my phone. I set them down. I forget where they're at. This is one of the things that Amy really loves about me. This is one of her favorite things about me because it makes her look so good because she gets to come in and be my hero uh, so often. So she really, I think she really likes it when I've run around the house and this last minute, I've waited to the last minute to be leaving to go to some appointment and I show up and, or I call her and I'm like, hey, have you seen this, my wallet or my phone or something, you know? And she's like, absolutely, I'm going to be your hero again and she'll tell me where to go look. And I find it. There's something, the, the thing about losing something is, is the fun there isn't finding what you lost, Right. More than, more than just keys and wallets and phone, though, I mean, consider losing something of great value, like something with sentimental value, like a, a wedding ring or engagement ring that's been handed down. It doesn't have to be something of great value if there's some, some sentiment attached to it. It hurts when we lose it. But more than that, more than that, I think, I'm not sentimental about a lot of stuff, but I think I am sentimental about relationships. I think that's the thing that hurts the most. And more than possessions, when we lose each other, is a difficult thing to bear. As a church planner early on, I was told, you know, somewhere along the way, it's not a matter of if it's going to happen, but when it's going to happen, that you will be rejected or betrayed, left alone by somebody that you thought was a co-laborer with you, somebody that you could count on, somebody that was locking arms with you, close with you, spending time and hours sweating together. All of a sudden, they're going to betray you, reject you, and, and, and leave you, and it's going to feel horrible. And I was like, man, I hope that never happens. But in nine years of doing this, it's, it's happened more times than I like to count. And it hurts. It sucks. It's bad. But I know that I'm not the only one as a pastor, church planter, minister. I know I'm not the only one that has experienced that kind of loss. It hurts to lose each other. If you've experienced the loss of someone else, you understand. It's a, it's a reality of this broken, sinful world that we live in, that we lose each other at times. But even that pales in comparison to the rejection and betrayal that our Creator has experienced from His creation. The beauty of this story, though, is that He doesn't leave us lost. He seeks us. In fact, that's this whole chapter. Chapter 15 is all about this seeking God. There's three parables that, that we're going to go through, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And each week it's going to be the same emphasis, the joy of God in finding those who are lost. This is the good news. The good news is this, that God seeks out his people to save them from their sin because it is his joy to do so. It is his joy to do so. It, it, he rejoices in saving sinful 
people. So if you're sitting here today and you're a Christian, you have all the reason in the world to rejoice with them. If you're sitting in this room and you're not a Christian, you have reason to rejoice because he brought you here today to hear his gospel about a seeking God, the good news of a seeking God that seeks what is lost. And you can step in and rejoice with him because you might be here so that today you would be found. You don't have to take my word for it. We'll read the text, and I think you'll see this play out. Luke chapter 15, we'll begin reading in verse 1. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. We're going to stop right there and just kind of, th- these are transitionary verses. This is not, he's not getting into his teaching yet, but yet it's, it's showing us what's happened as a result of his teaching. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's set his face. He's determined, okay, I've done my work in Galilee. Now I'm going to go to Jerusalem. He knows what's waiting for him in Jerusalem, and he's heading there. And this is kind of some of the stuff that's happened along the way. And we focused on his teaching. And along the way, as he's teaching, there's been results of that teaching. And so this is kind of giving us the transition to help us see what's happening as a result of his teaching, but also launches us into the next lesson. So let's deal with this, these two perspectives. First, there's the, what, the results of what has happened because of, his, because of his teachings. He spoke truth, like he went places and he spoke truth. If you look at the text, go back to verse four, or chapter four, 14, verse 35, and it says, It is of no use for the soil, for the manure pile, it is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus has just summarized this direct confrontational teaching. He's just summarized up this whole block of teaching that he's just given. And he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, in the original text, there's no break. There's no chapter number. There's no verses. And and if your Bible is like mine, if you're reading the SV, there's a little title at the top, the parable of the lost sheep. There's none of that. There would have been these words, he who has ears to let him hear, onto tax collectors and sinners were drawing drawing near to him. Here's the crazy thing that was happening. Jesus is being direct. He's being confrontational. Not any more confrontational than he needed to be, but the truth was always confrontational. He was calling people, if you go back, to, he was calling people to prioritize him. To hate father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children, and, and any other relationship. Essentially, every other relationship that we might prioritize must take a second seat to him. Like we must put him above every other thing. Every other person, not only every other person, but every other possession. He's saying that there's no possession, no, no thing we can know, no thing we can grasp hold of that is to be more important than him. And he's saying this and he's teaching this not just to Pharisees and to religious folks. He's teaching it to everybody. He's speaking truth. And what ends up happening is this truth draws the, the lost people, draws the people who are, who are sinners, who recognize their own sin, who recognize that they have a need of a Savior. It draws them close to him. While at the same time, building a distance with the Pharisees. So they would, the, the Pharisees, the religious people of the day, would seek to deny him and discredit him. But the, the people who heard his message, who had ears to hear, were drawn close it might be that there's a lesson for us in the church today. It's in the sermon, essentially, but, 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 but the truth is, is, I mean, we work so hard to say things that aren't necessarily true, but, but they're a little easier on people's ears, a little less confrontational, a little less direct. We live in a time and day when people within the church don't even understand the gospel. They don't understand their need. It's the religious people that were turned off. 
It was the religious people who discredited and denied. But the tax collectors and the sinners drew near as he spoke truth. Not only did they draw near to him, he sat down and ate with them. Like Jesus sits down and eats with these unacceptable people. Now there's this pretty cool contrast that happens between chapter 14 and chapter 15. At the beginning of chapter 14, you see Jesus being invited into this dinner banquet. He's being invited in by these Pharisees after, on the Sabbath, he's, he's being invited into the home of this Pharisee and he comes in and, and they are not inviting anybody like he's sitting down and eating with in chapter 15. Like they're, they're inviting people who make them feel good about who they are, who, who, who would, who would uh, lift up their position in culture of that day, in the culture of that day, who would, who would establish them as someone who is honorable. You see, the Pharisees, they had this idea that they were righteous in and of their, th themselves, like they were doing good deeds and maintaining their own righteousness. They were a people who sought to make a name for themselves by their works. And so here comes Jesus, and they're like, hey, why don't you come to lunch with us? Come to dinner after synagogue tonight. Come on, come on over. And Jesus shows up, and, and, and they didn't invite him because they felt like he belonged. They invited him because they wanted to show that they were more worthy than he. So they lay a trap for him and they seek to discredit him. They seek to deny him. And that's, the, that's the beginning of chapter 14. But then in 15, he sits down with a bunch of people who they have determined are less worthy than even he is. And they, they begin to grumble. Who is he eating with? Oh, why is this man sitting down with these kind of people? You see, the Pharisees, not only were they working diligently to try to prove themselves as righteous, one of the ways that they would do it was by distancing themselves, building an isolation. They would isolate themselves from the rest of culture. There's no way that they would have interacted with people like this. The, 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 they had this idea that there was a sin spectrum, and on one end of the spectrum was these white-collar sinners, and on the other end of the spectrum was these blue-collar sinners, like the, like the tax collectors. They were rich, and they were wealthy, and they were, they, but they were sinners. They were evil people. And on the other end of that spectrum, there was prostitutes and there was delinquents and people who obviously had sinned against God because they were lame and they were blind and they were deaf. And they viewed themselves as a people who were totally disconnected from that spectrum. And they maintained that disconnection by isolation. They maintained their own righteousness by disconnecting from and stepping back from and, and keeping away from. But here comes Jesus, this man who they already are seeking to deny and discredit. Here comes Jesus, and he sits down and he begins to eat with them. Who is he? What is he doing? They're grumbling and they're murmuring. But here's what's happening in the midst of this. Every meal Jesus ever ate, whether it was at the Pharisee's house or with the tax collector and those who are obviously sinners, every meal he ate on this earth, he ate with sinners. There is a sin spectrum. But it doesn't start with tax collectors and prostitutes and the lame and the deaf and the blind. It doesn't start there. And it doesn't end it. There's a sin spectrum of, of self-righteous morality and earning and pos positioning yourself and working and following rules and saying, look at who I am and look at all I do. I am worthy. I am righteous because of who I am and what I do. That goes all the way down to these people who would autom automatically understand. I'm a sinner. I'm depraved. I'm broken. 
So this man they grumbled about, who is he to sit down with these people? He's the same man that sat down with you and ate with sinners when he was at your table. So you enter Jesus, a man who's not on that spectrum at all. He, he didn't have a nature of sin. He didn't have an inclination towards sin. He didn't have a desire for sin. He, he, never, he, never, he never acted in sin. Not only did he not have the inner workings of sin and the fallen attitudes and motivations and desires, but he not only did he not have that, but he didn't have any action of sin. He always did what he was supposed to do, and he never did what he wasn't supposed to do. He always acted righteously. Through and through, this man, Jesus, didn't exist on the spectrum of sin anywhere. But every other person he dealt with, whether they were self-righteous and moral, or whether they were recognizing their own depravity, was. And so in the middle of this dinner, sitting there eating with these people that were deemed unworthy, he hears these other unworthy people grumbling. Why would he eat with them? They are unworthy of him. And, and because he eats with them, he is unworthy of us. Who is he? Well, we're going to see who he is as we study the story, the parable that he teaches. In fact, if you, if you read through it all the way, you're going to see that it's a trilogy. We like trilogies, right? Like it's Stories are best told in trilogies. It seems like all these major stories throughout history happen in trilogies. He tells us a trilogy. I've been thinking of it as a Trinitarian trilogy because in it we see God rejoicing in finding that which is lost. We see a God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit engaging in seeking what is lost so that it can be found. Because there's only one thing that satisfies someone who has lost something. That's finding it. And so God, our God, our creator, and his Trinitarian persons seeks after what is lost. Let's pick it up in verse 4. We'll see the first story of the lost sheep. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he is founded, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus, hearing their grumbling, sitting and eating with tax collectors and sinners, these unapproved, unacceptable people, he's sitting there eating and he hears these Pharisees, these other unworthy, unacceptable people grumbling. And he confronts them. And he challenges them. And he begins to show the contrast between who he is and what he's been sent to do and who they are. It's not the first time he challenged them. The same exact thing happened at the beginning of chapter 14 as he sat at their dinner. At the beginning of chapter 14, they're trying to trap him, trying to catch him, trying to, do some, trying to get him to do something that can allow them to disapprove of him. And so they bring this man who has a disease, and they say, and, and, and they know he's going to heal him. And so he does, but he challenges them. And he reveals in that challenge, in that question, he reveals their inconsistencies. He does the same thing here. He challenges them. He begins to make them think, well, what about you? If you had 99 sheep, or if you had 100 sheep, I'm sorry, if you had 100 sheep and one of them was lost, who, who of you wouldn't go and find him? 
The thing is, what he's showing them is that they would do the very thing that they're condemning him for. God does the same thing that they would do for their sheep, but he does it for the sheep of his flock. He does it for the people that he has chosen. He does it for the people that belong to him. In fact, without too much trouble, we can see that Jesus is even implying that he's the one seeking the lost sheep. That's the whole purpose of this parable. See, it's not only the first time that he's challenged the Pharisees in their inconsistencies. It's also not the first time that the Pharisees would have thought of the people of Israel as a a flock of sheep. In fact, it's a rich analogy that's drawn throughout the whole Old Testament. Over and over and even bleeds over into the church. Into the New Testament and the work that Jesus has done. Jesus is the good shepherd and he's making reference to that in this parable. We can see that play out. Just think of some of the Old Testament passages. I won't show, share them all with you. I'm going to bring some to mind, I think, that, that will help. Probably the most popular one that maybe comes to mind immediately for you is Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my... Thank you. All right, I just want to make sure I went by myself. He's my shepherd. What does that mean David is? Sheep. Right. He's sheep. And by implication, so is every other person that considers them God's people. In fact, it goes on, you can follow it through, that you see this beautiful imagery, this powerful imagery of a shepherd who knows his sheep, who feeds his sheep, who leads his sheep, and who protects his sheep. It's powerful imagery in Psalm chapter 23. Maybe another, another picture that Jesus is drawing from that I think would have been readily apparent to these Pharisees that he's challenging in Psalm 28, verse 9. It says, Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Save your people. like Get them out of danger. Bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Immediately, here's this picture. It doesn't jump off the page, I think, immediately for us because where we reside in history and and we're not studying the Old Testament with the diligence of the Pharisees. They misunderstood it. They misapplied it. But they knew the scriptures inside and out. So Jesus talks about this shepherd who picks up a sheep and carries it. Don't think that this isn't like the fulfillment, this parable, the fulfillment of this psalm that they would have sung throughout their history. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Maybe one a little more detailed, a little one, one a little more broad in, in implicating what's kind of happening in this parable is from Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet during the time of the Babylonian captivity. So, so as Israel fell, fell, sorry, a little hit coming out. As Israel fell, Israel fell uh, the northern kingdom fell, then Samaria, and, and, and Judah's the last one standing, and Babylon comes in and conquers them. And over a period of several years, they b- begin to bring people into captivity until they finally destroy Jerusalem. And, and, the, and the thing that ends up happening is as, as, these, as these people are brought in, um, uh, God begins to prophesy. Ezekiel is one of these prophets. He ends up living in Babylon and prophesying about the destruction of what's, or, or the destruction of Jerusalem, but not just the destruction of Jerusalem, the promise of God to save his people. And in chapter 34, Ezekiel confronts the, the, the people of Israel as he then turns and provides a promise. Let me just share with you what it says. Ezekiel 34, begin reading in verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? 
You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. See, there was people carrying the title, carrying the, sitting in the position, carrying on the role of shepherd, but they were not shepherding the sheep. They were abusing them, taking advantage of them, using them for selfish gain, eating off of their fat, clothing themselves with their wool, not seeking the lost, not binding up the broken, not, not looking after those who strayed. So they were scattered and they became prey for the animals and the beasts. God confronts the kings and the priests of Israel that were charged with the responsibility. He says, you fell down on your job. But the beauty of the story is, we have a God who seeks and rejoices in finding his sheep. So the story goes on. We'll pick it up in verse 11. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. You see, God understood that the misery that they, that they were dwelling in, he understood the, the, the weight of oppression that they endured because their shepherds had failed them. He understood that they were sheep that were scattered and lost and he was going to have to go and find them. But he took it upon himself. He determined himself to, I'm going to go. I'm not going to trust this to some hireling. I'm not going to trust this to someone who cannot be trusted, who is as sinful and broken as they are. I am going to go and get my sheep. And it's his flock that he is looking for. He is looking and he is going to find them. But it gets really clear at the very end of the chapter, pick it up in verse 22, when he says, I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. See, they're not going to be in danger anymore. They're not going to be at risk. They're not going to have to be afraid for their life. They will not feed anyone else off of themselves. I will rescue my flock. They shall be, no longer be prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep See, God isn't seeking flock, uh, 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 sheep from every flock. He's seeking his sheep. And I will set, them over, set over them one shepherd, my servant, David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be a prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken there's so much authority, so much power, so much certainty in these words. But he talks about, okay, I'm going to go find them. I'm going to go get them. I'm going to bring them back together. What was scattered, I am going to gather to myself. I'm going to do it myself. And then he talks about this David. This David that he's going to set over them to be their shepherd. But we know he's not talking about King David. And we can be certain he's not talking about that king that lived because that king is dead. He is not going to raise David up, but he's going to set someone on David's throne that will establish his kingdom forever, who will make certain that his flock will never be prey again. That man is Jesus. You see, what Ezekiel is doing is prophesying the time that Jesus will come. 
He's prophesying the day that Jesus will stand among his people, seeking out his sheep, that they will no longer be prey, and that they will be brought unto, brought, gathered unto the good shepherd. Jesus is that good shepherd. Who's this man that would sit down with sinners? He's the good shepherd that gathers his flock. Jesus is the good shepherd who compassionately keeps watch over his flock. The shepherd in this parable has 99 sheep, or I'm sorry, 100 sheep. He has 100 sheep. I, I, I had a couple of kids to take care of when they were little. And it was hard to chase after two. Could you imagine chasing after 100 sheep? Like you imagine being a kindergarten teacher or, or, or being a, even when I was a manager at, at, at Worldwide Aviation, it was sometimes I was like I was a preschool administrator. Like you think these people were adults, men no less. It's like dealing with children at times, doing their own thing, going off their own way. This good shepherd that Jesus is, he watches his sheep so closely. He's so concerned for them. He has such compassion and care for them that when one's missing, it is noticeable to him. Out of a hundred, he noticed just one. So Jesus cares. He's concerned for the needs of the sheep and he does not want to lose any. He will not lose any. He is compassionate and concerned for them. I mean, this is, I mean, think about it. This is the one job of the shepherd. In terms, so in our terms, so we use a, a leadership development and a gospel coach training program called, called a, a, a leadership development program called Gospel Coach, where we seek to help people step up and be shepherds or to, to lead other people to disi disciples become disciplers, essentially. And in that language, in that training program, we, call, we talk about shepherds. No, they, they're present with, they understand the needs, they understand how important it is that that they're interacting with and connected to the sheep. They know the sheep. They lead the sheep. They set the example. They don't drive the sheep by beating them. They walk ahead of them. They set the example. They lead the sheep. They, don't, they, they, they feed the sheep. They make sure that the, feet, the, the sheep have good food to eat. So we always depend on the word to be the grass, the green grass that the sheep are able to, to feed on. The, know, lead, feed, and protect the sheep. We do that again by preaching the word, by teaching the word, by depending upon everything in every way, the word of God. We know, feed, lead, and protect the sheep. But you could sum that all up into one statement. Don't lose any sheep. Like that's the chief concern of the shepherd. Don't lose any sheep, whether they starve to death, whether they get ripped away by wolves, whether they, whether, don't lose any. Keep your eye on them, have compassion for them, be concerned for them. That is Jesus. This isn't just a picture painted in some story. This is Jesus saying, this is what I do. I compassionately watch over my sheep so that even if just one is missing, I see it and I know it and I'm concerned about it. Jesus is the good shepherd who relentlessly seeks out his people until he finds them. This, this, this five-letter word until is extremely important in this story. This isn't a precursor. It isn't just some, some formality that the shepherd's going through. Well, I'm not supposed to lose any sheep, so I'll, I'll act like I went out and looked. He didn't go out and look and sit behind a hay bale and just hang out until it felt like he'd spent enough time doing it. He seeks the sheep, relentlessly seeks the sheep until, 
until it's found. It's certainty that he's going to find it. He is going to find it or he's not going to quit looking. In a sermon on this passage that uh, Charles Spurgeon said these words, he said, it is a wonderful supposition that which is contained in this parable. If he lose one of them, that's the phrase from the parable. If he lose one of them, what? Lose one of them he loved or ever the earth was? It may wonder for a time, but he will not have it lost forever. That he cannot bear. What? Lose one whom his father gave to him to be his own? Lose one whom he has bought with his own life? He will not endure the thought. That word, if he lose one of them, sets his soul on fire. It shall not be. Hear the certainty. He does not stop seeking until all his sheep are found. And so if you're sitting here and you know that you're one of his, you can know he didn't stop seeking until he found you. Rejoice with him. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, man, I, I don't know that I'm really his. If you are, be confident he will find you. In fact, it might be that he just has you here today to convince you that he will not stop seeking you until he has found you. Jesus will gather his sheep. It is certain. There's not everyone that's going to be overlooked. There's not everyone that will be lost. It may wonder for a time, but it will always be found. Jesus is the good shepherd who sacrificially endures the burden of sins for those he saves. It's a beautiful depiction in this parable. I think to me it's the one that stands out the most. I appreciate so much. The shepherd comes and he finds the sheep. And he then starts beating it with his hook to get it to go back to the flock. He doesn't wrap around its neck a, a leash that he can drag it back. He doesn't even speak to it and say, come to me, come follow me. This lost sheep that wandered on its own, that found itself in its predicament because it wandered, this lost sheep he picks up and places on his shoulders. And he carries it. He bears the burden of it. Again, another, another quote, I couldn't have said it, I don't think this good. Our Kent Hughes commentary draws out a quote from a guy named um, Philip Melanchthon. He worked with Luther during the Reformation. He's credited with Luther uh, in the establishment of the Lutheran church. He wrote this. He says, inwoven in the text, there's a sweet signification of the passion of Christ. He places upon his shoulder the sheep he has found. That is, he transfers to himself the burden of us. He takes on you. Not just some exterior thing. He takes on you. He picks you up. And if you go back and you look at it, look at it again, where it says, he says, when he found this sheep, in verse 5, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. He picks you up and he carries you. When does he put you down? And when he comes to the home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. For I found my sheep that was lost. I don't know. I don't want to read too much into the silence that's there. But there's not a moment mentioned where he puts the sheep down. He carries the sheep. He picks the sheep up. He carries it home. And we never see the time where he sets the sheep down. But he calls his friends and he says, hey, come and celebrate. 
I think another, another way that this is drawn out, another way that we might identify with it or, or it might sink in a little deeper with us is in the, in the hymn, As Well With My Soul. I think it's the, first, the, the third verse. Horatio Spafford wrote these words, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. You see, he didn't pay for your sins before you knew better. He didn't just pay for those sins. He didn't just pay for them partly, and then now you've got to make up the rest of the, of the account. My sins, not in part, but the whole. Nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. See, here, here's this, this picture of this shepherd who comes to the sheep, who has wandered off on its own, who it deserves what it gets because it didn't stay near the shepherd. And he comes and he relentlessly seeks until he finds it. And when he finds it, he doesn't beat it down. He doesn't put it in a headlock and say, why'd you leave? Come on back with me. He doesn't lasso it up. He doesn't wrap it around his feet. He gently bows down and picks it up and puts it on his shoulders and carries it home, taking the whole burden of the sheep's wandering upon his own shoulders. That's exactly what he did the day that he carried his cross through the streets of Jerusalem to the point where he laid down on the hill of Calvary, nailed through each hand and through his feet to that tree, raised to hang until he died. This man, who was never on the sin spectrum in any way, in any shape, any form, had no inclination to sin, had no desire for sin, never acted in sin. This man, who knew no sin, hung on that cross, died in our place for our sins, taking our place, bearing our burden, so that you and I could rejoice with him. So that he could rejoice in seeking and finding his sheep. Why did he do it? Because he rejoices in, in, in saving repentant sinners. There was no miscalculation. There was no accident of God. God didn't simply lose power at some point in the Romans one or the Jews outsmarted him. Jesus hung on that cross purposefully so that you and I could be found. So that you and I who are dead can now live. So that you and I who were lost would be found. That is why he did it. And he did it because he rejoices in doing that. Jesus is the good shepherd who rejoices in saving his people from the misery of their sin. He rejoices. He's excited. He's celebrating. I mean, have you ever wondered what God, what brings God joy? Well, we, when we seek to answer that question, I mean, oftentimes we're like, oh, I got to read my Bible more. I got to do all these things more. I got to find these ways to impress him more. I got to please him more with my life. I got all these things I got to do, and I finally God will be happy with me. No, God is happy. He rejoices in the repentant sinner. So rather than seeking to find all these things to do, simply repent of your sin. Because that brings joy to the heart of our God who is a good shepherd who seeks his people, saves them from their sin and finds joy in doing so. That's, I think, what the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews picked up on as he wrote in chapter, two verse, or chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, 
For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look, we're not going to downplay the reality that every person in this room, whether you're self-righteous and moral, or whether you're depraved and you think you just can't be saved, we're on the spectrum of sin. We are not going to downplay the reality of sin in the life of God's people. We're not. I'm going to call you on it weekly. I hope you're calling one another on it regularly. I hope you're close and intimate enough in one another's lives that you can speak truth. Calling one another to repentance and faith. I hope that it's happening regularly in this church. I hope that we're not ashamed to go out into the world and call them to repentance. That they might trust in Jesus and, and Jesus might rejoice in saving another lost sinner. But we're also not going to downplay the compassion and the relentless seeking and the joy that comes as he picks the burden up and places it upon his shoulders and carries it. And so far as we know, never sets it down. Never sets it down. See, Jesus endured the work of the gospel. And to downplay one so that we can simply talk about what's easy is to diminish the fact that Jesus endured this. Rejoicing, carrying the burden, rejoicing. Knowing that there was joy coming. So what will you do then? In light of the fact that we have a Savior who seeks us until he finds us and celebrates when he does. I've got three things I think that I could try to help in. And they all start with R, so it's going to be easier for you to remember. I hope it will be easier for you to remember. Renounce your self-righteousness. Renounce your self-righteousness. If you grew up in this area, if you've been in church in this area for very long, please don't hear me bashing the bride of Christ. It's, none of us are perfect. But a very common theme in this area is the legalistic perspective that in some way you get saved by Jesus, but now you've got to keep yourself saved. By Jesus. It develops this Phariseeism. It develops this idea that in some way we are earning our place before him and maintaining our place before him. Set that down. Renounce it. You cannot do it. Do not become, do not be a Pharisee. Another way that this works out in our culture is this idea that you can say a prayer when you're a kid and you can go down an aisle and get baptized and that's going to save you forever, not actually changing you, not actually converting you, not actually making you new, not actually meaning anything that you've been found. And you can just go off and live your life any old way you want to, but never be new. But I'll go to church once in a while. I'll make sure that I'm there on Christmas and Easter and make sure that I keep God happy with me. And I'll follow the rules, or at least I'll tell people I am. And on the outside, from the outside looking in, I might appear religious. Don't be a Pharisee. Renounce yourself. Righteous morality, it is on the spectrum of sin. It is just as real as any depravity is. If you think that there are people unworthy of Jesus and you aren't one of them, you're a Pharisee. Renounce your self-righteousness. 
If you can see everyone else's sin, like you look at people's lives and you think, oh man, those people are sinners. But you can't see your own. You're a Pharisee. Renounce your self-righteousness. If you always find yourself accusing everyone else, but are never confessing sin yourself, you're a Pharisee. Renounce your self-righteousness. There is only one way we are saved. It is because our shepherd came seeking us and he picked us up and he placed us on his shoulders and he is carrying us home. Renounce your self-righteousness. Repent of your sin and believe. You see, this, this speaks to every end of the spectrum. The reality is, is that, yes, yeah, I'm, I'm confronting the Pharisees in the group. I'm confronting the Pharisees in the crowd because, man, you got to speak directly to these people. That's exactly what happened. As we see Jesus doing over and over and over, the highest and greatest amounts of confrontation he had were with the Pharisees because they were so blinded to their self-righteousness. But for the rest of the people in the room who recognize your depravity, who recognize that you are sinful, maybe even so sinful that you don't deserve God's salvation at all, be glad that you have a seeking Savior who will not quit until he finds you. Be glad He's come. And all you got to do is repent. Now, well, what's that? What, what, what is that? What's depicted in this passage is not explicitly called out, except in the place where it talks about that he rejoices over the repentance sinner more than over the 99 who don't need to repent. But it's depicted in the passage in the fact that this sheep doesn't run from the Savior. When he bows to grab the sheep, when he bows to pick up the sheep and put him on his shoulders, the sheep doesn't run away. It doesn't go to some other thing. It doesn't hide in the shadows. It doesn't get behind a rock so that it can't be found. He doesn't run deeper into sin or deeper into his waywardness. He doesn't run away from the Savior. He repents. He just gives himself up so that the Savior, so that the shepherd can put him on his shoulders and carry him home. Quit trying to impress God. You can't do it by yourself. Quit trying to work your way to him. Quit thinking that in some way you can make your way, but quit thinking that your sin is so great that he can't find you. Quit thinking that you're a sinner beyond salvation. Quit thinking that his grace isn't big enough to forgive your sin. Repent of it. Turn from it. Lean into him. Rest on the shoulders of the shepherd who came seeking you. Repent and believe. Let him pick you up. And carry you home. And third, rejoice. Renounce your self-righteousness. Repent and believe. And then rejoice. Join the party. Step in. The celebration has begun. Rejoice. There's all kinds of reasons to be excited and to celebrate the very fact that we get to sit in his presence and know him and be partied over the very fact that he would throw a party because of someone like you and someone like me. Rejoice with him. And sad, it's an unfortunate reality in the church today that we bring shame when people confess sin, that we condemn rather than rejoice. You know how we know that happens? Because there's people sitting in this room who need to confess, who won't. Because they're scared of the shame that comes from the church. 
One sinner who repents causes the heart of God to be glad. Rejoice with him. Confess your sin. I don't, I, don't, I don't care if you said, told people that you've been a Christian for 30 years. There's no shame in standing up and saying, I, today, today, today is the day that my Savior found me. That my Savior saved me. There's no shame in stepping out and saying, I am depraved. I am full of sin. But today my Savior saved me. Because when you do, oh, he rejoices. When he saves you from the sin he knows that your life is full of, he rejoices. And we get to rejoice with him. Renounce your self-righteousness. Repent and believe and rejoice. Because our good shepherd compassionately watches over his sheep. Our good shepherd relentlessly seeks until he finds our good shepherd. He bears our burdens sacrificially. Rejoice because our good shepherd rejoices as he does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love, for your care for us. Thank you for the sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus, thank you for coming and finding us. If there is any here today that have not been found, I pray, Father, I ask you, Jesus, to wake them up, pick them up, and begin to carry them home. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.